This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 4th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with the journalist Simon Brook. Plus... We learned this week that being inside a single market containing most of the world's richest economies is good. Andrew Muller looks back at the week and our fashion editor reports from the front row. Stay with us. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Russia's ruptured undersea Nord Stream gas pipelines are set to be sealed up and mothballed. Gazprom has said it's technically possible to repair the damaged lines, but two sources familiar with plans said Moscow saw little prospect of relations with the West improving enough in the foreseeable future for the pipelines to be needed. Six opposition-led Nigerian states have withdrawn a Supreme Court petition to invalidate the result of last weekend's presidential vote, which they had argued violated electoral rules. Separately, losing presidential candidate Peter Obi secured a court order granting his party access to electoral materials as his campaign gathers data for a possible legal challenge. The annual meeting of China's legislature opens tomorrow. The nearly 3,000 members of the largely rubber-stamp parliament will elect and endorse a new lineup of top government officials to be led by a new premier for the next five years. Xi Jinping is widely expected to secure his third five-year term as president. And in Poland, lawmakers from the ruling Nationalist Law and Justice Party claim that the opposition party Civic Platform plans to limit the consumption of meat and replace it with insects, an accusation the opposition rejects. Their leader, Donald Tusk, hit back at the allegations, labelling the government a promoter of worm soup. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now with Simon Brook, who's a journalist and communications consultant. Simon Worm Soup, are you tempted? <laughs> Delicious, can't wait. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> well, actually, but there is there is an ice cream maker, isn't there, who's doing something pretty pretty similar. Tell us yes. about this German guy. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the uh, Associated Press has this story about uh, a German uh, ice cream shop um, in a small ger- southern German town who has introduced uh, cricket ice cream. And I have to say, when I I first read this, perhaps it's because I'm English, I thought, oh, ice cream you eat when you watch the cricket. But no, this is made out of bugs and things. So according to uh, the uh, the creator of this rather unusual dish, uh, those who try it are very enthusiastic. I have customers who come here every day and buy a scoop. So I thought it was quite interesting because there is this big debate, isn't there, about sort of for sustainability reasons and stuff, why we should probably be eating things like bugs and, and creatures and things like that. So uh, it'd be interesting to see um, uh, whether this sort of drives that uh, that move or something. Because mm. um, it has been whipped into a media storm in Poland, actually, this whole story 
story. Uh, Polish politicians are, are, are really kind of getting at each other over it. And, and it's, it's fe- the stories featured heavily on the state-run broadcaster TVP. Uh, and, uh, you know, that they've, they've, they've been doing this ever since that uh, the, the C40 Cities initiative. And that rem- recommends measures such as eating less meat uh, and using cars less and so on. Uh, and uh, but but the, the state broadcasters really kind of pushing the fact that the opposition want everybody to eat worms, which Absolutely. isn't really what they're saying. <laughs> exactly. No, but it does work if you're in politics. I suppose it works, uh, doesn't it? Well, you let's could... look at the murky world of politics because Absolutely. certainly here in Britain things have been just disappearing down a wormhole. Actually, yeah, in many ways, <laughs> down the toilet, wherever you want it. But certainly, yeah, uh, just it really has been bizarre. I think what's been interesting here is uh, looking at the, the, the sort of political situation is it's actually been quite a good week for our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak who's sealed uh, uh, the deal on Northern Ireland uh, well subject to what the Democratic Unionist uh, Party says but basically he, he seems to have pulled off a blinder here um, with and, and certainly improved relations with the EU which he must be very pleased about so that's all good but unfortunately uh, Mr uh, Shiny Shoes as he's known in Westminster has uh, well, two previous uh, uh, colleagues have come back to haunt him, or their antics have anyway, in the form of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, because um, the Times is leading with a story that the Privileges Committee, which is investigating whether Boris Johnson misled MPs over lockdown parties uh, and rule-breaking, uh, uh, well, it says that, according to the, the Times, the Privileges Committee's Committee has said that this rule-breaking should have been obvious to the former Prime Minister. And the paper goes on to look at what uh, what the implications might be for this. And one of the implications might be that Boris Johnson faces uh, sanctions against him, which would mean that he would be suspended from the House of Commons for more than a month, and then he could face a by-election, mm. um, which would be very embarrassing. And I thought, I mean, what was really interesting, watching sort of news coverage of this and watching Johnson uh, try and defend himself on television last night... He was saying, um, but at the time I, I didn't know that I was breaking the rules. I didn't really, I wasn't sure what they were. And it was, this man was literally on television every night telling us what the rules were. I cannot have been the only person screaming at the TV last night using some pretty ripe language. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there are many others, especially as we saw those pictures, didn't we, of him standing there. I mean, who took the pictures? Why was anybody allowed to, to do that? It's just, is it incompetence or arrogance? A bit of both. But uh, y- yes, the idea that he was standing feet away from other people in a big group in a social situation and that he says he didn't know that he was breaking the rules just yeah it's just unbelievable and then the coverage goes into all these whatsapp messages where you see his his aides saying we don't know how to cover this up basically yeah yeah, exactly well i I mean slightly having been in politics i've been slightly in this situation myself never i should add as bad as this but there are times when you think this is a really difficult one to to handle but usually there's something you can say but as you say in this case uh, as we saw way back when the first scandals broke about uh, parties at number 10 there really isn't anything you can say about this no uh, but of course matt hancock now this is a whole other story just to explain uh, what's happened here in terms of the the media aspect of this story now there was a, a, a journalist isabel oakshot and she ghost wrote his book and that's the sort of beginning of the story what happens next yes well what's interesting is uh, exactly as you say isabel oakshot uh, ghost wrote this book uh, this attempt as many people saw it by Matt Hancock, the 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 the, health, the English Health Secretary, during the time of COVID, 
to sort of promote his own line and, and to promote his own record, if you like, in advance of the official report into government's handling of COVID coming out. What's interesting about Isabel Oakeshott, um, and I think this says something about Matt Hancock's judgment, is she, well, she's she's probably best known in some ways for writing a biography of David Cameron called Call Me Dave, in which she made allegations of a, a rather lurid sexual initiation ceremony uh, that the, the former Prime Minister, apparently involving a pig's head, I should add, that took place when he was at university. The other thing she did was to encourage um, the wife of Chris Hoon, who was a uh, cabinet minister uh, during uh, at one point, uh, she encouraged Vicky Price, uh, Chris Hoon's wife, to admit for the fact that she had taken points driving uh, points from Chris Hoon to protect him, whatever. And as a result, of course, um, that was a great big story, great for Isabel Oakeshott. But Isabel Oakeshott, we are told, had had sort of reassured uh, Vicky Price that she would not get into trouble legally. And in fact, Vicky Price went uh, to prison because Isabel Oakeshott didn't protect her as a source or whatever. So you've got to question Mac Hancock's judgment about giving all this confidential information to Isabel Oakeshott is is what I would say. Um, and that's sure enough, uh, she has released this information, thousands and thousands of WhatsApp group messages that show how uh, Matt Hancock and his colleagues handled the uh, the um, you know the, the ongoing situation with lockdown and the pandemic. And what really um, strikes me about it is that even though they're obviously managing a serious situation, so much of what we've seen so far has really been about presentation. Yeah. You know, how do we spin this? Uh, and I, I also think what's what's really interesting about this is that she wrote the book. Apparently, was not paid for it. Did sign an NDA. Now she's on a very big, high-paying contract. We understand with News UK, which is a group that uh, owns the Sun newspaper, for instance, and various other uh, publications and indeed radio stations here. She then takes all this material she has and sells it to a rival paper, um, which is bizarre when, if uh, allegations are to be believed, she is on around about £250,000 for her job with News UK. Why would you you go to to another outlet? Well, I, I, I think what it shows, as I say, is is tells us something about Matt Hancock's judgment. I mean, if he wanted to tell his story, there would be journalists, write, freelance writers, ghostwriters queuing up, I think, if, if anything, just for the sort of curiosity factor, the notoriety of writing the book. But he chose Isabel Oakeshott, as I say, who has this reputation, who has this track record. And so um, it's really not surprising at all that she has released this. Uh, I think the final twist on this story, perhaps, is that she's done a number of interviews in the media to try and defend herself. And I mean, Google them, they're out there. Uh, just terrible. I mean, yeah. she just has no excuse whatsoever. So I think it's just this whole this whole sorry saga is just an example of one person's terrible judgment after another, including her, her own, for going on the media, clearly trying to defend herself, but clearly having not thought about the fact that what she's done is essentially indefensible. Mm. Uh, and of course, what comes out of this, firstly, as you say, Boris Johnson may well lose his seat or perhaps be put up for a different seat, but that mm. seems unlikely now. Uh, and that Matt Hancock's reputation is just not salvageable. No, well, no, completely. And the certain irony, as I say, given the, the fact that he tried to get this book out to try and present himself as uh, the leader, the visionary, the, the 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 czar of uh, of 
lockdown who, who made the whole thing work. And then, of course, he appeared on the reality TV show, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which he also seemed to think somehow that that would improve his image or whatever, which, uh, which uh, well, I think many people say it, it didn't. So, um, yeah, a really sorry state of affairs in many ways. And he's now started his own production company. As you do. <laughs> Why not? Um, as you say, it should have been a really good week for, for Rishi Sunak. He achieved a lot. Uh, let's hear what Andrew Muller makes of it. We learned this week that being inside a single market containing most of the world's richest economies is good. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. We learned this from UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who, in the course of selling his silk purse from Salzir Northern Ireland deal, took a break from his usual shtick of pitching Brexit as a passport, a blue British passport, obviously, to the sunlit uplands to enthuse to an audience in Belfast about the possibilities and opportunities of free trade with the European Union. Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. No one. Only you guys, only here. If it's that exciting, maybe think about rolling it out to the rest of the country is a notion that I believe will find favour with the general muttered agreement crew. In what has been quite a week for admissions from those culpable for pointless political tantrums hurled on entirely false prospectuses, we also learned that Fox News might have been guilty of forsaking the reporting of verifiable reality in favour of just telling its core audience of angry yokels what they preferred to hear. And we're going to need our chorus of in-house Captain Renault's back. No. Really? Oh, what? that blows my mind. Really? No way. Blow me down. That's probably all for this week, but don't go too far. We learned of Fox's duplicity from what can probably, in this specific instance, be considered the reliable source of Fox News proprietor Rupert Murdoch, deposed under oath in a $1.6 billion lawsuit being brought against Fox by voting tech company Dominion, which has rather wearied of Fox presenters suggesting that Dominion had been an accessory to some ghastly nefarious conspiracy to deprive former President Donald Trump of another four years of chewing on the Oval Office furniture. Tonight we have new explosive details from the private conversations of Fox News executives as they knowingly fed their audience lies about the 2020 election. We learned that Murdoch's testimony contained, among much else, the following admission vis-a-vis Fox's amplifying of Trump's demented fantasies of electoral fraud, as will now be narrated by Monocle 24's shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here, desk chief Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it, in hindsight. 
This follows, of course, the unearthing through the same case of emails between some of Fox's best-known presenters, from which we learned what they really think of certain of the seething Trump acolytes to whom Fox gave its airtime. Those assessments including, but not limited to, insane, a complete nut, and a wackadoodle, and the views thereof, nonsense, crazy and bullshit. We also learned that Fox President Jay Wallace had side of one of his network's own programs that the North Koreans do a more nuanced show. Sticking with the subject of rousing patriotic tunes, we learned that the inadvertent playing of the wrong national anthem at an inopportune moment has lost none of its considerable power to amuse. We learned that Hong Kong's ice hockey team, expecting its victory over Iran in a tournament in Sarajevo to be acknowledged with China's national anthem, March of the Volunteers, were instead treated, by accident or design, to a pro-democracy protest song called Glory to Hong Kong, or at least to a bit of it, before the error was noticed. We learned that this is the fifth instance of such a mishap in the last year alone, and we, for one humorous news monologue, are genuinely sorry to have missed the previous four. But if there's one thing we have learned about China, it is that Beijing's response will be, as always, equable, forgiving and good-humoured, as befits a great nation, and in absolutely no respect, undignified, petty or absurd. (coughs) As a side note, we also learned from squinting at the scoreboard, 11-1, that Iran absolutely suck at ice hockey. And we learned that among the very many varieties of dissent liable to incur the wrath of authorities in Russia is the hanging of noodles on one's ears. We learned that Mikhail Abdalkin, a Communist Party member of the State Parliament of Samara, had been summoned by local plod after he disseminated footage of himself watching a recent speech by President Vladimir Putin with, indeed, noodles hung on his ears. We learned upon looking into this further that the phrase to hang noodles on someone's ears is a Russian colloquialism meaning to lie to someone, or so it says here on the internet, and that Mr. Abdalkin thereby stood accused of calling President Putin's integrity somewhat into question. We, however, cannot see that there is much of a case against Mr. Abdalkin and believe that the Samara police, stick with us, seeking to prosecute him over his subversive spaghetti draping are... Grasping at straws. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. Now, going anywhere nice on your holidays, Simon? Well, not Saudi Arabia, probably, (laughs) since you ask. (laughs) Uh, Now, the reason you say that, of course, is the South China Morning Post has this big article on Saudi Arabia and how it's promoting itself as a tourist destination. Of course, the country was completely closed to tourists until very recently. Yeah, I mean, I I was interested in this because I was actually offered this uh, an opportunity to do a travel piece by a PR. But um, at the time, I just thought that's not going to work. And I'm wondering now whether I ought to try and pitch it to some of my editors. Because, yeah, as you say, uh, there is a piece here 
here, um, journalist Natalie Wong, um, who went to Saudi Arabia accompanying the leader of Hong Kong, John Lee, uh, in in a diplomatic trip recently. And then she looks at the opportunities, the possibilities of tourists enjoying the, the country and it does have some some beautiful areas certainly but uh, um, she, she does conclude that Saudi Arabia has its work cut out as she says um, that even though tourism is growing um, th- that it's very difficult to move around the country there's almost no sort of public transport um, uh, and she describes you know just even just trying to get from one centre one building to another nearby actually requires an uber journey because there isn't even a, a, a sort of bridge or whatever so there's certainly things to to, to see, and she does encounter a, a Canadian tourist there who is uh, who is intrigued by the country, and I think I suppose here there's a moral question. In my when I was first approached to to do this, um, I was thinking, do I really want to support a country with such an appalling human rights record? And and you know, Natalie Wong says in this piece, you know, it's uh, uh, you, you know it does behead people still. There's also the terrible uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in in 2018. The, the journalist, um, but. I suppose, do you go and then, you know, if more and more Westerners go, does it sort of challenge the prejudices and and of, of those in the country? Does it improve women's rights when women in the country, in Saudi, see other sort of tourists coming, looking relaxed and, and confident and not, uh, you know, oppressed the way women are there? Will it make more and more people question those human rights abuses i don't know it's, it's a, an interesting moral question as long as a bit of as long as a bit of sun and sightseeing as well i suppose isn't yeah, it? absolutely it's, it's a very tricky one and of course while you're there i think that it would be illegal particularly if you're in a same-sex couple to show any kind of physical effects that would be interesting isn't it how do you do you want to go and how how much do you want to demonstrate probably not a good idea given as the piece points out there are people who have got on the wrong side of the authorities foreign nationals who have made a mistake and you know and suffered as a consequence well let's talk about intimacy <laughs> because you've come across this great interview. Tell us more. Yeah, I, I think we've all seen these uh, the role of intimacy uh, coordinator discussed, haven't we, in the media? And obviously this is a result of the Me Too uh, scandal which broke a few years ago and concerns about the way uh, certainly female performers, uh, artists, actors might feel intimidated or even pushed into doing something slightly more on camera or as part of a, a scene in a play or a film than they feel like doing. I hadn't seen an interview with one before, but the, yeah, the New York Times has an interview with Jessica Steinrock, who is uh, a very uh, experienced intimacy coordinator, worked on uh, things such as the Hulu miniseries Little Fires Everywhere um, and uh, discussing uh, basically how she goes about uh, encouraging people to be intimate without being too intimate if you like that, there's actually a nice picture of a, a picture here of a range of modesty garments and barriers including pouches pads and strapless thongs in case that just <laughs> just so that's the physical thing anyway but i suppose also she what she does is and there isn't much i'd like more detail of this i have to say but what she does is to encourage that negotiation between actors and directors so that you can still have what looks like intimacy but at the same time nobody feels they're um doing something they don't want to do how interesting and i wonder i mean it must be very carefully choreographed Literally, and I suppose that's the thing. I mean, she, they make the point that the issue was particularly thorny in improv, which is grounded in a philosophy of accepting on building whatever your scene partner gives you. So, 
to what it, I mean, there are sort of scandalous stories, isn't it? I'm thinking of Nick, uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, where the suggestion was that, that uh, you know, that there was sort of intimacy there, that uh, the lead actors got a bit carried away. So I suppose, yeah, how do you do that negotiation and, and, and how do you know how far to go? Are you acting? Are you really feeling like this? Yeah, it's it's a minefield really, isn't it? But presumably there must be a lot of sort of skill when it comes to empathy and uh, an understanding alongside, I suppose she gives advice. Is it like, don't put your hand there or, you know, or don't, don't do this or pick up on that uh, cue from your your fellow actor even though they're they're still performing the scene or whatever um, i say i would like a bit more detail but it's a it's a fascinating thought isn't it about how you how you achieve that and you know when you look back and you think sort of the hollywood movies of the 40s and 50s where you always had to keep one floor foot on the ground <laughs> the haze code as it was called yeah exactly and how much that's changed yeah. Although, has yeah. it? Because you've still now got somebody there policing it. But that's probably a good thing. Well, it is, isn't it? It's one of those things that's gone to one extreme, I suppose. We you know, we saw sort of sexual intimacy uh, s- scenes that would have been like considered pornographic, you know, enter the mainstream or whatever. And that feeling that you have to show, if, if you're saying that a couple is in love or attracted to each other, you have to show pretty graphic physical detail, don't you? And whether... Is it going the other way or is it you can still show that graphic physical detail, but you can do it in a way in which it's sort of um, nobody feels exploited, nobody feels pushed into it, nobody feels no actor or director. Do they come into it? comes away afterwards and feeling sort of solid and dirty or whatever mm. but then i suppose that's a real actor's thing isn't it how do you make it look passionate and 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 raw and animalistic and and whatever but actually it's all clean and correct and above board sort yeah. of thing. or you could just keep the clothes on <laughs> that's another idea why not an act perhaps yeah uh simon thank you very much thank indeed you. uh talking of keeping your clothes on well <laughs> to do <laughs> yes well done <laughs> uh we're going to head to the catwalk with monocle's fashion editor natalie teodosi fresh off the heels of london and milan fashion week she's now in paris for the big one well tom edwards managed to catch natalie between shows for a chat about a common theme we've heard in our interviews with design designers and brands alike, sustainability in what's arguably one of the biggest polluting industries and how companies tackle the issue. Well, Tom uh, asked Natalie to begin by giving us a quick recap of what's happening during the various fashion weeks. It is a very exciting time of year. It's it's a time to discover new talents and draw inspiration. And that's what really happened in London this year. There was a lot of young designers that are really taking over London Fashion Week. And that's that's what London has always been known for. But this, this last few years, especially, a lot of new talent has been coming up. But also Burberry, it was back on the schedule and they had a big new debut with a new designer, Daniel Lee, and you see. So um, a completely new strategy and hopefully uh, some better days for brand made in Britain. And we've also moved to Milan after uh, which had a lot more focus on the bigger brands. So you, there you see a lot more from Prada, Giorgio Armani. That's, that's the players that are really taking over the scene and the week. And uh, a lot more of the international buyers are there. And it's, it's a lot more business oriented mm. because the budgets are higher and the stakes are higher as well. Well, talking of high stakes, it's, it's interesting, especially on this program, when we talk to fashion brands, um, reinvented brands or, or, or new startups, 
there's always this conversation about sustainability and in particular how increasing seasonlessness can help to drive that, to stop so much dead stock and all the rest of it. Do you hear, do you see that as you travel around that that's on the agenda for people, this idea of trying, even as people are, prepared, are showing new season uh, couture and clothes, they want to talk about trying to be more seasonless in terms of their approach? Definitely. I think it is being a big part of the conversation and a lot more brands are now trying to show more classic garments and a more just timeless way of dressing. It is a bit of a paradox because fashion weeks themselves are built on this idea of renewal of seasons, showing something new and, and encouraging people to keep shopping and, and buying new things for their wardrobes. But with sustainability being now top of the agenda and the fashion industry really being criticized for this constant renewal and the waste that, that that it produces, it has become more more of a focus. And not every brand, but a lot more brands are trying to turn their attention to classic, timeless garments. And instead of just changing everything every six months, just investing in craft, in artisans and improving the quality, playing with material innovation much more than just trends. Well, I love that. And and it ties so closely into the sort of monocle value set, which is often about buying less but buying better um, and a more accessible, you know, wearable styles, which I think people who read the magazine uh, will will recognise. But just on the sort of trend side, were you struck by anything in particular in terms of looks or other aesthetic uh, pivots uh, in terms of the season that we're seeing that might set the agenda in terms of what people can expect to see, not just on catwalks, but also in on, on the high streets as well soon? I think a lot of brands are trying to revive the 1990s, which is not necessarily a great thing, (laughs) but we will be seeing a lot more of it, I think, come next summer and next winter as well. And it, it is a trend that has a lot of divided opinion, Gucci in particular, which is going into a new direction with a new creative director starting in September, has been looking back to its glory days with Tom Ford in the 90s and bringing back some some of those looks but then you we, we will also be seeing a lot of a lot more elegant and timeless clothing that we've been speaking about from people like Armani and Prada and Bottega Veneta that I think our listeners or people that have a bit more of a, the monocle aesthetic would appreciate. Um, looking back to look forward, for someone of my particular vintage, Natalie, that, work, that works for me. Um, Natalie, always good to catch up with you. Thanks very much for chatting. And that was our own Tom Edwards in discussion with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day, but for now, thank you for listening. <laughs>